Welcome to Radio Free Culture from WFMU, where we examine issues at the intersection of digital media and the arts. My name is Cheyenne Homan, and in this episode, we'll be talking with David Carter, a librarian at the Computer and Video Game Archive at the University of Michigan. Would you like to start by just introducing yourself, telling us a little bit about what you do? Sure. My name is Dave Carter. I'm a librarian here at the University of Michigan, and Amongst my duties is I am the uh, archivist for the uh, Computer and Video Game Archive. So tell me a little bit about that. How did it get started? So we've been in existence for about six and a half years now since we opened. And it got started based on essentially a uh, faculty request, which really wasn't more than you guys should do something about video games. (laughs) And and when when we looked into it, we found out that there was, in fact, a lot of video game related activity going on around the university. There were faculty teaching classes or doing research um, and students obviously taking those classes and and things like that. I sort of wrote up a a very short one paragraph proposal to the library administration which was essentially we should do something about video games because there's stuff going on and they said tell me more. So I got together with a couple of colleagues and we drafted a proposal and that got accepted and so we started up. And that's, you know, that's sort of the not-so-secret origin, I, I suppose. So how many courses do you support as the video game archive? It's hard to say. There are usually, you know, a, a handful every semester that are specifically about video games. And then there are several more which bring in video games, um, you know, as, as just a component of, of the overall class. What did you think it would be like, and how did that differ from the reality you know, as we as we went through exploring what we could do, we zeroed in pretty quickly on the idea of, of what I call an open archive, which is that uh, we let people come in and use the games without necessarily having to prove that they need to use it for academic purposes. Video games come in a variety of formats, and right. you know, some, <laughs> some now are purely digital. They're born digital, and right. they are you know sort of ephemeral in that way. So how how do you grapple with so many different formats in your collection. Right. Well, we cover all the way back, you know, from the 1970s um, up, up through the present. Um, and as you noted, there's tons of different formats. Um, we have to deal not only with, you know, the, the games themselves, but also the platforms on which to play them um, and the displays on which to display them when people are playing them. Um, so it's, it's fairly easy for us as a library to handle games that come as physical objects, whether it's a cartridge or, or an optical disc or a floppy disk or something like that, um, it is a little more of a, of a stretch for us to deal with all the, the newer stuff that's born digital. Um, and not, not that librarians have a problem dealing with uh, digital objects. I mean, we've been doing it for at least you know 20 years, and we, you know, we cut deals with um, licensors for, for digital content all the time. Um, but the fact that the games are so small, <laughs> you know, it, it's... It can be difficult for me to spend 99 cents on a game, <laughs> you know, if it's, if it's a digital download, mm-hmm. uh, as, as opposed to, you know, we know how to deal with large licenses and deal with vendors, um, but dealing with the small stuff was, was an issue that we had to go back and forth between our, you know, our, our licensed folks here and our electronic resources specialists here 
uh, to figure out the best way in order to do that. And we we figured that out, um, but it was an interesting challenge for us to deal with. So I know that there's been some talk about optical discs sort of disintegrating over time or -hmm. their quality degrading. Have you noticed anything like that happening to your collection or is that has that not been an issue? Not that we've noticed yet, although I I will say that I'm more worried about those than I am about the cartridges. You know, the cartridges seem to have held up pretty well, um, and we can usually resurrect those by just cleaning off the contacts of the cartridges. Um, now, of course, there's some that have, like, batteries inside of them and things like that, which, which are a different story entirely. But for the most part, the old games and the old systems are, are really have held up well. For the When they switched over to optical discs, and those must have been, what, about 20 years ago? Yeah, I feel like those were early to mid-90s. Right. Yeah. So we're kind of starting to reach the point on those of when professional manufactured CDs are starting to degrade. So we'll have to see how that goes. We store them decently. We don't store them in like a super archival climate-controlled setting. But, you know, we do have them closed away, and uh, so they're not piled up together or, or something like that. So we're taking as good care of them as we can. Um, one, one thing that we we have done is we've gone with the old uh, magnetic disks and made um, library archive backup copies of that stuff in case those go bad or we reach the point where we no longer have the hardware to read those old disk formats. But of course, there's other issues as well, because um, most of the optical disk formats have some sort of digital rights management attached to them. And that's, that's an additional legal layer of stuff beyond the technical layer that would have to be dealt with. I'm sure that you don't have a room of stand-up arcade cabinets, but do you have the, any of those games in any format? I know that a lot of them have been emulated. So so we've got this, oh shoot, what's it called? Our, oh, the Arcade Legends cabinet. It's a cabinet yeah. that's got about a over 100 different arcade games on it. I think it runs MAME on a Linux uh, thing on the inside of it, but then you know it's got the, the joysticks and the buttons and the trackball and stuff, so you can play a lot of the games kind of sort of like they were intended to be played back then. Other than that, we really don't have much in the way of, of the arcade games, although I've got my eye on one of um, one of the modern reproductions of a, of a uh, Ms. Pac-Man table. So we mainly focus on the, you know, the platform games, uh, handhelds, computer games, and, um, and then we also have some, some board games um, in there, and we've just started getting into, into the mobile gaming arena. Yeah, so what are some of the highlights of the collection? Oh, golly. Um, first, it's size, I suppose. We're closing in on about 6,000 different games. Um, and then the scope, as I said, we've, we've got all the major platforms that were released in North America and many of the minor ones um, as well, You know, going all the way back to the days of Atari or even like dedicated Pong system up to, up to the present. And um, so you know, we've got some interesting stuff in there. You know, we've got a, a Vectrex machine in there. You know, Turbo Graphics machine. I've got a CDI machine. Got a Virtual Boy in there. So all kinds of weird and odd things that a lot of people haven't seen, kind of out in the wild. They may have only may have only read about them online or or in books. Um, I can give examples of, if, if you'd like, of of interesting uses of the archive. Um, yeah, I think that would be great. Okay, so. Um, so I'll give you some of our uh, canonical uses. Um, for, for example, there's um, a, a class in the Screen Arts and Culture uh, Department that's taught, taught once a year about video games as, as culture slash form. Um, and the, uh, the professor will bring her class in uh, usually once a semester. And usually she's got an idea of what sort of games she wants them to play. So 
the first time they, they came in, she wanted them all to play violent video games for an hour. They'd been talking about the impact of violent games in their class, and um, a lot of the students didn't necessarily normally play those sorts of games. So there's that sort of um, communal group experience around playing certain kinds of games. Uh, we had a class from the English department that came in, um, and the class was focused on apocalyptic literature. The instructor wanted to cover video games as, as an example of apocalyptic literature. So we worked with the professor to select specific games that had a, a, you know, post-apocalyptic settings. Um, and then the students came in, and as, as their class session, they were able to you know, play those games. And then you know, he had some questions that he wanted them to address. So after they got done playing, they came back together as a, as a group and sort of addressed the different themes that they saw and how those themes related to what they uh, talked about in the, the different novels that they had read. One of the engineering classes here was assigning the students to, they had to do an experiment on studying the effects of texting while driving. And this is clearly not a, um, a experiment that you want to actually carry out on the road for, for the obvious reasons. Yeah. Um, so what, what they ended up doing was uh, the groups of students brought their subjects into the video game archive and had them practice uh, driving using one of the um, racing games that we have. And of course, we've got you know the steering wheel and the pedals and stuff like that. So it's kind of sort of like driving. So they would practice driving around the racetrack, and then they'd say, okay, now try doing it with your phone and while you're trying to send a text. And, of course, they would crash into the walls and everything like that and, and sort of show how you can easily be distracted um, while, while driving. And so you know, the goal wasn't to study the games themselves, but the games were used in order to study something else and was a you know, convenient way of, for us to contribute to that. Yeah, with less liability attached. <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. And then we worked, um, over the summer, we worked with the Language Resource Center here on campus. One of the many things that they do there is they work with international graduate students who, who want to become graduate student instructors. And, of course, they, they need to pass an exam for English competency for teaching. So they work with students who have failed that test at least once and to try to you know, get them up to where they can pass the test. And so they've been trying different things before about you know, simulated classroom settings and things like that. And they approached us with the idea of using the games in such a way that they would bring the graduate students in and have them teach games to each other. So we work with them to identify good games. We use both board games and video games uh, for that from our collection. Uh, so they brought the students in and had them use the games to teach each other and they had a pretty darn good success rate. I, I think it ended up with about 75% or so of the students who, before going through uh, using the games to learn how to teach, none of them had passed it before, but then after going through the program, about 75% of them were able to pass uh, the exam. So again, that was using the games for a non-game-related goal. So we, we look not only for how can we use the archive for the games for the game's sake, but how also can the games be used um, in, in broader ways. So do you know of any other similar collections anywhere? Um, so there are, I mean, there are several around. I don't think anybody does exactly what we do, which is collect games and, and have people just come in and, and use them. I know Stanford has one and UT of Austin has one. Um, and of course, the Library of Congress has started collecting uh, games and, of course, there, there are many public libraries out there that have games and, and loan games out but aren't necessarily in the, in the archiving uh, business uh, s such as we are. 
Um, it, it was one of those things that, you know, within about six months of us um, embarking on, on what we were doing, I started seeing other announcements sort of popping up. You know, this is five or six years ago. Um, so it seemed one of those ideas whose time had come. But, you know, as I said, I'm not, I'm not aware of anyone who's doing exactly like we're doing, uh, which is probably a good thing. I, I think many libraries approaching this in different ways, I think, will only strengthen our ability to, to preserve and collect these games for the future. I think that's about all the questions that I had for you. Do you have anything else that you'd like to add? Um, one thing that does sort of concern me is, is how on earth are we going to you know, archive or preserve the experience of massively multiplayer online games. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, World of Warcraft is only really World of Warcraft if you're on there with tens of thousands of other people. You can imagine a time 30 years from now where somebody's running a World of Warcraft server and there are five people on it. Yes, you're sort of preserving the game, but that's really not what the game was. And I that's a, that's a problem that I have, that I'm not really sure how to tackle. Um, but then, you know, maybe such things aren't meant to be preserved. Uh, maybe, maybe they're like clouds, you know, they're meant to be enjoyed and meant to be enjoyed where they are. Um, but there's really no way to save that. You can take a picture of that. You can even take a film of it, but you know, for the actual experiencing of it, for the actual playing of it, um, maybe they're just parts of our cultural heritage that are just going to be. Um, impossible to make a you know sort of a perfect copy of that experience, and we have to we have to live with that, I suppose. Which which is kind of depressing, but maybe liberating. I don't know. Yeah, it's always tough as an archivist to admit that you can't archive everything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because you know we're making decisions all the time about about what we can and can't do, and, and financial considerations and legal considerations and all that. Um, but in the end, yeah, we can't we can't make a perfect copy of everything. Um, so that's, that's part of the, the fun, <laughs> the, the interesting part of it. A lot of what we try to do, I say, I'm not just preserving the games. I'm trying to preserve the game playing experience. Uh, so we like to have the original equipment. We like to have, uh, as much as possible, the original period displays to display stuff on. So we've got two based CRTs down in there with curved screens, um, on them. So people can play in television or ColecoVision or whatever, the same way that we did back in the seventies. And sometimes you, you discover interesting things, like, you know, why didn't this particular game system take off? Well, you start playing it, and the controller is just awful, and your hand starts cramping up after 20 minutes of playing. And you think, well, nobody would want to play this for a long period of time. And, you know, hearing, hearing the sound come out of one of those old tinny speakers on, the, on a 70s-era TV, as opposed to, you know, through your, through your um, Beats headphones or, some, or something like that, can, again, give you an appreciation for what the game developers were working with back in the day. You know, I remember playing on early consoles that had cartridges and like blowing into them and <laughs> trying to make it work. That. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Yeah. And do you know where that started or came from or like, it, it's, it's this urban, just an urban legend. legend. <laughs> I mean, we didn't have the internet back in those days right. or, or, I mean, the internet existed, but, but not for, you know, ordinary people to, to get on and use. So there weren't, people weren't going on the forum, the Nintendo forum, you know, and saying, oh, I'll just solve that problem, just blowing the cartridge. So it was, it was you know, passed down from person to person. And, you know, that's a perfect example of the, the human brain's ability to create patterns, to cause an effect where that doesn't really exist. Because <laughs> um, what you were really doing is you were pulling it out and putting it back in and reseeding it, which is all you really needed to do. But for some reason, 
um, you would blow an X and thought, oh, well, there's dust in there or something like that. And you'd blow into it and dust would come out and he'd put it back down in, then it would work again. So it was really the pulling it out and reseeding it as opposed to the blowing on it that was doing, doing the job there. Um, all the blowing on it did was get moisture in there, which causes corrosion, <laughs> which, is, which is the exact opposite of what you want to have happen with your video game cartridges. Right. So, so everybody out there, don't blow on your Nintendo cartridges. If you're having problems, take it out and reseed it. If that doesn't work, uh, pull it out and get out your metal polish and polish off those contacts and put it back in. And, and you'll be amazed at how well it works when you polish those contacts. Good advice. <laughs> so yes, if, if yes, if I've learned anything in this in the six plus years of doing it, it's it's polish your contacts on your old consoles. And if people want to find out more about your collection, where should they go? Probably the best place is we've we've got an online research guide, which is a good place to start learning about the collection. Guides.lib.umich.edu slash cvga. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter. We're at umcvga. Um, and then we're also on uh, Facebook at uh, facebook.com slash UMCVGA. So plenty of ways to figure out what we're doing and what we're up to. All right, great. Well, thanks so much for taking some time out today. Thanks for calling. It was great to talk with you. Bye. Bye. Radio Free Culture is produced by WFMU and the Free Music Archive and is supported in part by a grant from the National Endowment for the Arts. Our theme song this week is The Spider-Man's Nano Loop by Uncle Bibby and can be found at freemusicarchive.org. 